This trade group, which is 125 years old and has more than a thousand member companies, is the leading organization in North America advancing construction and agricultural equipment manufacturers in the global marketplace while using some unique programming to achieve their advocacy goals. Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard. Welcome to the Voices in Advocacy podcast, and I hope you're enjoying season four. I'm Roger Rickard, president and founder of Voices in Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. And this is the podcast dedicated to the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts for their organizations, be they corporations, associations, trade organizations, and nonprofit cause groups. Now, let's get started. On today's show, we speak with Wade Balconis, the Director of Grassroots Advocacy at the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, AEM. Wade is responsible for the 10-plus-year-old I Make America campaign, which advocates on behalf of the 2.8 million men and women of the industry. Prior to this position, Wade managed the PAC and grassroots programs for Walgreens and H&R Block. He has worked in constituent relation roles for a member of Congress, as well as the mayor of the city of Milwaukee. Now we get into the education. Wade holds a bachelor's degree in global politics from Marquette University, a master's in public policy and administration from Northwestern University, and a professional certificate in public relations from the University of Virginia. He is also public affairs council grassroots and PAC management certificate holder, and currently serves on the board for the Advocacy Association. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my warm pleasure to welcome Wade Balconis to today's show. Welcome, Wade. Thanks, Roger. Thanks for having me today. Great to have you here. Now, let's dive right in. What are AEM's kind of key advocacy uh, priorities at maybe the 50,000-foot level? Sure, absolutely. You know, as, a, as an association that, uh, that essentially helps build the equipment that builds, powers, and feeds the world, uh, you know, we're focused on a few key key pieces of, infra- of uh, policy information. First of all, so the implementation of the IAJA, the Inf- uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, is a key focus uh, for us here in 2022, making sure that those resources, that large investment in our nation's infrastructure uh, continues to roll out of Washington, D.C. and state capitals uh, around uh, the United States, which includes you know, helping us manage our, our shortage in workforce and workforce development, which many industries across the country are experiencing. Also helping uh, sort of manage some of those supply chain issues that are, are uh, no stranger to probably anyone uh, listening to today's uh, podcast. Uh, that as well as helping to continue to open up international marketplaces. We've always uh, helped strive for our member companies to be able to get these wonderful products that are built uh, in the United States and in North America, you know, out in the rest of the world so that we can continue to be that leading resource for technology investments in agriculture uh, infrastructure, as well as um, forestry and mining. 
And then lastly, uh, you know, a key focus for our, our association for many years with our member companies in small towns and big cities and everywhere in between has been continuing to invest in rural America. Obviously, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and transportation investments in general touch on this, but there's more opportunities to help make sure we have the right workers in the right places at facilities that are in rural America. Things like broadband and communications continues to be a key focus in rural America. And just really ensuring that we continue to support that vital part of our industry, again, with a lot of manufacturing, believe it or not, is, is, is taking place uh, in places with smaller population levels. Yeah, and, and you know, you made me think of something here. I think I saw somewhere, maybe it was even uh, in some information on uh, AEM, uh, where something like 78% are, of farms do not have high-speed broadband? Yeah, you'd, you'd be amazed. I mean, I, I work with a number of member companies. Uh, again, they're, they're, they're really diverse in where they're located around the country, but some of those member companies that sit on a committee to help run my programs, um, they'll talk about how they can't even you know, access important files at home. They're in such a rural part of the country that uh, you know, even for the manufacturing, they've got to come into facilities, get access to that technology. As we continue to push things like precision agriculture, which is a really important push for our organization, you know, lower inputs for better outputs is the easiest way to explain it. That relies so heavily on techno technology and communication investments that just hasn't existed. You know, farmers are only going to get more and more efficient using our equipment if there is that technology backstop there, which again, you, you, you said it, something like 70% of our America's farmers don't have access to, to rural broadband. And it affects both the agriculture side as well as the manufacturing side. Yeah, and I and I do an awful lot of work with the agriculture organizations, and and I know that they're all uh, using that as one of their key priorities too to be able to advance it. And I and I find it fascinating for AEM because I was thinking as you were going over all this, you know, if if we can't make it, we can't buy it, and if we can't use it. Exactly. So the importance to being able to make sure that that supply chain is efficient and effective for every average citizen in this country is, is vitally important. Absolutely. So you have a great grassroots advocacy program called I Make America Campaign. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and what are you asking uh, the, the advocates of this program to do? Sure, sure. It's a it's actually a pretty great story. So we're today we're uh, well into our eleventh year. We'll have our twelfth uh, anniversary, September thirtieth. We launched on the steps of uh, the U.S. Capitol, actually, with Mike Rowe and our former uh, president uh, of our association, Dennis Slater. With really a, a key focus here was to help leverage uh, uh, our opportunities with the men and women of the industry throughout our member company organization. So you said it before. We have over a thousand uh, member companies. Uh, our data shows us we have 2.8 million men and women in our workforce uh, that are direct or indirectly a part of, of building the equipment that builds powers and feeds the world. And, you know, giving those men and women a voice was really a key focus of the I Make America campaign. So to define it a little bit better, right, it's, it's a movement that's employee fueled, but it's member company driven. And we focus on passing pro-manufacturing policies. Um, maybe unique to our organization in some respects is that this is done from the ground up company by company, right? I mean, we're not a, a corporate entity. There isn't sort of one listserv to go to. We have many diverse opinions, technology, ways to get in touch with those, those individuals. 
And as we stand today, we're at over 40,000 supporters strong, uh, again, over a decade old. And over those years, we've collected uh, just countless testimonials uh, and ways to really help share the story of the men and women on the shop floor, but also the back office with our elected officials. You know, one of the one of the things I found fascinating in looking at the program is that it is created like a contest that earns them points. They can win prizes. They can go from the ground level or level one clear up to being a champion. Explain the thought process behind that type of engagement. Sure, sure. So. I mean, like all good practitioners, right, we're always trying to, to look for the best resources, the best advice and sort of who is who is helping, you know, blaze the trail in front of us or next to us to help us continue to move our programs forward. So, you know, we, we set out over the last couple of years and said, how can we continue to drive I Make America into the next decade of success? And there were a couple of key, uh, key things that came up. You know, prior to probably 2020, we were very focused on growing our supporter base, but maybe less focused on what was that supporter base doing. It was always great to say that we're an army of tens of thousands of supporters, but we continue to go back to the question of how are we making sure those supporters are engaging in the advocacy? How do we make sure that they're performing actions that help fight for their communities, their livelihoods, uh, and the places that they work in? And that brought us to, to, to looking at gamification. I mean, gamification isn't new by any means uh, in, in grassroots advocacy, but it's something that I think people hesitate to adopt. So we looked at our program and said, you know, through gamification, we can go to, you know, again, the men and women in the shop floor, everywhere down to sort of Joe the welder to, to John the CEO and say, you know, let's give you a little bit of a reward for getting smart on our policy issues, being willing to take actions and being willing to stick with us and, and as you can probably speak to, Roger, what can be a decades long process to pass legislation. So that, that led us down a long rabbit hole of, of looking at best practices, our sister organizations, companies that are implementing gamification, taking the best uh, that we could from them, putting our own spin on it ourselves, uh, and really looking at ways to make it innovative and effective for our communities. And that's where you go through a level of, of growth. You kind of move step by step. You build something called an action tron, which is just an animated robot that's sort of helping join the fight, give somebody something to reference as they work with us. Uh, and then it just sort of depends on the year. We continue to roll out new innovative programming, but we've done things where we give away grand prizes like uh, trips to Florida for you and your kids to go to Disney World or visit the national parks. Uh, which spread over a population of 2.8 million uh, possible advocates is a pretty small investment in the grand scheme of things, just to get people to come back, keep visiting, keep getting smart on those issues. Yeah, I think they're, you know, we talk constantly about incentives and what are incentives for people to participate. And while we want to be altruistic in, in, in the approach, you know, making it fun, making it engaging, making it participatory is really cool. And I was thinking as you were going through that and talking about your 2.8 million, uh, you know, uh, the employees that work in the space there, I was thinking it also comes down to who knows who, who knows whom. Right, right. You know, and being able to, through this gamification, be able to even track that and know, hey, Joe, you know, I think you use Joe the welder, but used to be in a political campaign, Joe the plumber. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Joe, Joe the welder, you know, happens to be the, the cousin of, 
you know, name the policymaker. And so right. it, it, it's a great way to be able to connect with those, those different things. You touched on this a little bit, but there are different stakeholders within this I Make America campaign, because it's not only about elected officials or policymakers. I can think of uh, maybe other manufacturing employees that it touches, local media that it touches, uh, public perception. Is is this correct? And and am I missing some? No, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, it is an opportunity on, on just many, many fronts. First of all, it's a member benefit. We, we offer it to our thousand plus member companies as a way for them to show a commitment to advocacy and education opportunity for their employees. We travel extensively. I'm on the road very often going and educating um, you know, the men and women on the shop floor and giving them a chance to sort of see their, their membership dues go to work for them. So that's one very important component. Obviously, there's the policy advocacy drive where we can get them as well as their supporters, their family members, their friends to get more engaged in our program, get educated and hopefully move the needle on policy. There's that aspect. We also bring elected officials into our facilities to give them a chance to see firsthand uh, what equipment manufacturing in the United States looks like. And honestly, what some of our partner organizations that are internationally based but doing operations here in the U.S., are accomplishing uh, for the for the citizens of this country, uh, and then obviously you hit on it. There's that there's that public perception and media aspect that all of these are great opportunities to tell our story, share a member company's story, share an elected official's story, and then share what are the pro manufacturing policies that we're all trying to work toward. Um, and in some places, I've said before, we're we're based in very sometimes very rural communities. Um, you know, we can we can really help leverage the story. Uh, whether it's the local newspaper, radio, or local media, uh, and really come in and almost make a pro-manufacturing just in general piece, talk about how important it is that we're building these things and we're building them right here in our home communities. Uh, yeah, and in fact, you, uh, you hit on a few things I wanted to touch on there was your ability to be able to use the manufacturing site as a vehicle for which you reach those different stakeholder groups all at the same time Absolutely. Uh, which is which is incredibly important. I know uh, AEM operates some of the largest trade shows or co-sponsors participates in, in those. And do you leverage these shows in any way for your uh, advocacy engagement and even even growth in advocacy? Sure, sure. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I don't know if this is totally unique to us, but a huge challenge that we face in, in driving our supporter base is that, you know, again, we're not a single corporate entity. So, you know, with consent from our member company organizations, we have a chance to do outreach within facilities, see individuals, get them to sign up and engage. In many respects, when we say sign up, there's a real physicality to that. There's a, a postcard that they get a chance to fill out uh, through our technology investments that we'll talk about a little bit later. We give them a chance to sort of opt into us sending an engagement on their behalf just to get that ball rolling, get a comfort level. And we've, we've sort of taken that model, and I think, again, a little bit unique to, to ourselves with our large trade show presence, and bring that to our trade shows. So we go to now it is really sort of our customer end user for our member companies. These are a little bit less of the men and women on the shop floor. Approach literally tens of thousands of them at, at any given show and ask them to join us in this fight for pro-manufacturing policies. So again, if you've been to any large, large trade shows and you know you hit on it, we do a big one in Las Vegas every three years called Con Expo, Con Ag, and IFP. Uh, and that has over 110 plus thousand uh, attendees every year, many, many 
uh, of our member companies go and, and show uh, at that at that event. We use technology in order to gauge engage our our attendees and say, hey, stand with us. Uh, and through something as easy as a scan of their badge, uh, we're able to say, why don't you join us in a certain fight and, and help us push for a pro manufacturing policy? We've seen a lot of great success there for many reasons. Data comes back to us in a little bit of a, a cleaner format. Engagement seems to be uh, very high for those folks who, who really, again, they're the end users. They see the importance of these pro manufacturing policies sort of coming to fruition. So um, we've done a lot of innovative programming there. Uh, a lot of great partnerships and sponsorships from our member companies helps drive that participation. Certainly doesn't hurt uh, that, you know, Doosan Bobcat, for example, has been a strong supporter for years and, and gives us a, um, a UTV, an all-train vehicle to give away every year for anyone who decides to take that step and join us uh, in supporting pro-manufacturing policies. So actually have such a vehicle I need to give away from a trade show uh, that, that ended last year in September in Kentucky, but that continues to be a great way just to sort of drive interest and get people more and more involved. Uh, yeah, I, I, and I think you're right that it's not necessarily purely unique in being able to use the trade shows, but the fact that you have the size and the scope and the importance of the trade shows to your industry probably takes it to a much higher level than what other organizations even have that opportunity to do. Exactly. And in fact, it, it reminds me, you're your, your current president actually came up through the ranks of running the trade shows for AEM. And, uh, and I happened to work with uh, Megan Tunnell when she was with the, not with, but when she served as the volunteer chair of the International Association of Exhibitions and Events, uh, where I was a, uh, an advocacy consultant for them. And you've got a great leader, a uh, great great lady who will help take you even further as you go down the line with this. Certainly. So speaking of that, you're doing all the great touch points, the engagement, your, your gamification, you're getting them involved, getting them to participate in the process. But then what do you do? Do you have any programs in place to train those supporters to make them even more effective, influential advocates? Sure. I mean, like like everyone, right? We look at the ladder of engagement. We try to bring supporters in at that base level and continue to move them up. Now, we do serve sort of two interests, as you pointed out before. I mean, we are an association, so our member companies uh, and their engagement, in many respects, is as important, uh, if not at times more important than maybe the 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 average supporter in the I Make America campaign. So that's where our ambassador program really comes into effect. We look at our thousand member companies, we find those that are very engaged uh, in our programming that are helping spread the word down to the shop floor in the back office and identify that key contact at that organization, see how we can cultivate their relationships with elected officials. They help play a very important role when we go to facilities, not only to elevate themselves within their own organization, but when we bring elected officials in, they are a key person to sort of make that introduction and that contact. I mean, as, as again, as you know, and many people listening today, a CEO is a, is, a, is a very viable and important person to have in the conversation. But our elected officials want to hear from those constituents. You know, they want to hear from the people living in the community and our ambassadors who are based in the facilities that we represent can be very vital parts of that program. Just to take it a step further to get them more engaged and bought in, we don't only gamify our involvement with our individual grassroots supporters, but we gamify uh, the participation with our broader member companies. Uh, and we encourage them 
to often visit some, some resources. We provide them internally. Who's got the most participants performing at this point in time? Who's engaging? Who took advantage of this program? Who didn't? Uh, and then at the end of the year, we celebrate them in a program called the AEM Advocates Award, where we assign a different set of points for our member companies, celebrate them at our annual meeting, uh, and give them a chance to sort of take a bow for all their hard work. So, you know, again, sort of two programs running simultaneously, all within the I Make America umbrella of what is advocacy, grassroots advocacy. And now we're talking a little bit about grass tops advocacy. Well, I, and I agree that while it may not be unique, most organizations are skipping parts of what you're talking about there. You're tearing that. You're not only, you know, uh, incentivizing and engaging with the companies, but also down to the grassroots. And we talk about the importance of that individual that, you know, maybe on the manufacturing floor that talks about the importance of their job, that talks about the importance of what they're manufacturing and what that does for the country, which leads me to how important then is it uh, for those personal storytelling from those those type of advocates? And why do you really feel it cuts through differently than A, a lobbyist or the CEO that walks in the room? Certainly. So, I mean, and this is another great comment on sort of tech, technology helping lead the way. I mean, as we move to different platforms and we rethought, um, you know, how are we going to engage our supporters, which led to the launch of hub.imakeamerica.org, which is the main sort of action center for folks to take, uh, you know, engage with us and, and participate in the program. We were able to, to just simultaneously go to all of our supporters and say, for example, tell us what bad infrastructure means to you. Something you think would really be surface level participation would be minimal. We were blown away that across the country, we had supporters that had been with us for almost the entirety of our, uh, of our program, as well as new supporters who are willing to divulge you know, the, just the real raw struggles that I think we all take for, for granted when you talk about something like infrastructure. It takes me 45 minutes longer to get home because of poor infrastructure, traffic, you know, undersized bridges. That's 45 less minutes with my family. I can't do remote school because my kids can't get access to reliable rural broadband. Those raw stories, and I'm, and I'm really talking about the passage of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, but to take those testimonials that is more impactful to those elected officials who are hopefully seeing uh, some of the issues affecting their constituents firsthand versus that CEO um, who, who also has a story to tell. Though I will say that that same sort of story collection does resonate when we talk about infrastructure. Uh, you know, we had member companies that said it takes us two hours longer to get, you know, a piece of equipment to the rail yard because the bridge is too short, you know, leaving the main gate. You know, you'd think, in America, how do we solve some of these problems? Frankly, if we don't bring it to the top of the table, right? If you're not at the table, you're on the table. So these two things simultaneously, member company stories, but then that raw realism of the individual in our community and what affects them is I think what helps resonate and, and brings elected officials to come to us and say, okay, what are some policy proposals that can fix this? Yeah, I'm kind of chuckling because as you're telling these stories, uh, Wednesday, I was speaking on the East Coast, and the driver was taking me to the airport, and all of a sudden, the entire exit to get into the airport was blocked wow. uh, because of needing to repair uh, a bridge. 
and they sure. totally blocked it. And so we had to go around that. Now, thank goodness I had an extra half hour to get around that or, you know, I wouldn't have made my flight. And, and we know that when policymakers are impacted like that, change happens. Certainly. <laughs> so now that's a positive, Roger. I'd say now that we got the bill passed. Absolutely. I think hopefully everyone can can have a little bit more patience for a little bit longer. And there's resources at AEM.org uh, to help sort of track this. We'll see a little bit more disruption, but the end goal in that investment is going to hopefully start to see a reduction in, in times and traffic. Hopefully we'll see a speed up at our ports and waterways, you know, getting goods to market. I mean, we're hopefully we'll see an expansion of rural broadband. I mean, there's a lot of positives coming, um, but you hit on it before. If there was no light at the end of the tunnel, you know, that's the real raw frustration that everyday Americans feel. And if you get enough of them to tell an elected yeah. official, they start to pay attention. Yeah, and, and we're seeing it everywhere. I mean, we're seeing that infrastructure is rolling, projects are starting to work. Uh, yeah, there will be that short-term disruption, but in the long run, it is it was necessary, vital, and critical to, for us to be able to advance and move forward. You've brought up a number of times, Wade, technology. And uh, what technology tools do you use to, to keep them engaged? I know you're using you know, the gamification, but how are you managing that for your advocacy efforts? So all, all organizations can benefit from, from technology investment. Uh, you know, whether you're big or small, making the right investments in technology can be really, really vital and push you uh, to, to a different level in your grassroots advocacy. We found that continuing to invest and in bringing more of our, uh, uh, whether it's our policy or our lobbying grassroots you know, political action committee into one platform has allowed us to, to create synergies where we know what are some of the lobbying efforts taking place and how do we line grassroots and, and even pack right up behind it. Um, and, and technology and, and our providers, which many of us know if we've been in this industry for any period of time, they're continuing to find some of the best practices across the field uh, like gamification and introducing them in their own platform. So you don't have to go spend a crazy amount of money to say, you know, I do want to add a little bit of gamification. In fact, you could even run gamification outside of some of these platforms. But some of the key technology for us, again, having 2.8 million men and women going to trade shows of hundreds of thousands, people who don't have a dot, you know, manufacturer here.org email address, we have found that things like text to take action has been a vital component. Investing in QR codes that we share with our member companies that they put in table tents in their lunchrooms so that when folks are on break and they have their phones accessible, they can do something with them. We found being strategic about our communications. Is it early in the morning? Is it late in the evening? Is it on the weekends? This is when folks who are, again, are on the shop floor are going to be accessing uh, you know, their own technology and engaging. Compare that to my efforts in corporate America. If you didn't send it between nine and five, no one was going to be engaging in it. So you know, using those investments have been really important. At the trade shows, there's, there's things called lead generation, leaning into that technology, being able to understand how many people were coming to you and your booth location. Again, these all have a dollar sign attached to them, but some of them will give you, you know, much more bang for your buck and shockingly are not quite as expensive as you'd expect uh, to be able to have you know, text action to 83797 and be able to go do something. Um, you know, that has proved to be very vital for our organization. So let me uh, kind of do a devil's advocate here and ask, do you think technology is taking over or is it enhancing 
the personal grassroots engagement? I think it's enhancing. I think you can, you know, you can't diminish the ability, especially for me in this program, to go into a manufacturing facility, bring their employees together and have a real conversation about why their voice matters. One of the hardest things for me to prove to, again, Joe the welder, is that it really is more than just you. When I say, take an action, get loud, let's fight for this pro-manufacturing policy, there's this perception that it'll be one person shouting into the void. And so to convince that individual that, you know, you see the men and women around you, let me talk about the 40,000 that are connected digitally. And let's talk about the 2.8 million that are connected even beyond that. Technology helps us just bring that world a little bit smaller, a little bit more consumable, a little bit more uh, easy to wrap our minds around versus sort of just going in and saying, again, you're, you're shouting into the void as one person. We're unifying you together. So I think it's, it's, it's making it easier, but it does not eliminate the need for that one-on-one connection, especially as you cultivate people up that ladder of engagement, making them more of a grass top supporter. You're on the board of uh, the Advocacy Association. You're very involved. You have a great educational background, umbrella in this entire uh, industry, if you will. So generically, let me ask, do you think uh, D.C. fly-ins, advocacy days on Capitol Hill will return to what we what we call normal operations? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So actually serving on the Advocacy Association board, we, we co-signed a letter with a few other organizations, you know, sort of asking the Hill, when will you be back to normal? This is a vital part of us sort of continuing the educational process between elected officials and their constituents. Um, You know, I have been on multiple fly-ins, in fact, just recently, one last year, under sort of the current COVID post-January 6th protocols, and it's a little bit of a a tightrope in order to move around. It is doable. There is a way to make it happen. But will we get back to the days of, of, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people and organizations up on the Hill sort of moving freely? I'm not so sure. I think we'll, we'll sort of see what comes out of it. There is a new willingness, certainly, um, on the Capitol Hill side of things, people to have digital meetings. Uh, really, that is a little bit party driven. What I can tell you is if your organization can get on the Hill and can find a way to sort of navigate these, these murkier waters, the time with elected officials is more than I have ever experienced in my career. The FaceTime for those that can get on the Hill can navigate some of the difficulties, you're going to have much, much longer and frankly, higher quality conversations today than you would have five years ago when you were fighting every interest that was on the Hill that day. Yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of like a, uh, a meat market in the, in the terms of, you know, ding, your time is up. Next, please. Next right. number, please. Next number, please. And, and, you know, and to the staff that had to deal with that constantly every 15 minutes of every hour of every day that, you know, the Hill was open and operating, uh, you know, it's probably a great break for them. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you just think of the word advocacy? Boy, the first thing that comes to mind word advocacy, I, I, I think it's, you know, people just sharing their voice. I think it's, you know, it's all about sharing your voice. That's advocacy. Now, whether it's 
a lobbyist doing it, it's a CEO doing it, it's a member company doing it. It's it's sharing your perspective that we have to understand that elected officials just simply don't have the capacity to know all these perspectives. Well, I love the answer because when you call your company voices in advocacy, uh, you, you you hit right on it. And I don't think you necessarily intended that, but I, I but I thank you for that. What is the biggest challenge in your job? Is it time, uh, bandwidth, uh, money, uh, combination? Yeah, I mean, all of the above is the easy answer. But I think I think the toughest thing is how do you stick with your supporters? How do you keep them coming back? I mean, at the end of the day, if you only had eight hours a day to manage a digital platform and engagement, you constantly are searching for ways to make that a value add for your supporters. So how do you keep them coming back, keeping them engaged and 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 deal with the inevitable, we call it our bleed rate for a lack of a better term, but just that drop off. How do you deal with the fact that people get exhausted, they change industries, you know, they, they, their interests move on. How do you sort of keep them coming back, refueling, you know, that drive, that need to participate and make it interesting and then make it interesting over 10 years? It, it becomes a continual challenge. Well, yeah. And I feel the hardest part is educating people enough where they understand what you, I think, said earlier, you know, it may take 10 years to get a piece of legislation where they right. get frustrated about, well, you know, they said they liked it. Why can't they get it done yesterday or tomorrow morning? Uh, exactly. And they don't understand the, the process, the volume, the priorities. Uh, and, it, and it's very difficult uh, sometimes where they feel the frustration that comes hand in hand with the time factor that it takes to achieve something. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Uh, what is the best professional tip you've ever received in your career? Boy, I think being in the room as often as you can. You know, I had uh, mentors and, and, and bosses over the years that have kind of had open doors and said, you know, hey, this meeting has nothing to do with you, but do you want to be in it and, and sort of listen and learn? And I think if you have, if you're lucky enough to have somebody who does that, take every opportunity you can within reason of your own, you know, needs that day. But then if you don't try to cultivate that relationship with your leadership to say, you know, I, I, let me be a fly on the wall. Let me learn from the best. Let me observe. And then hopefully take that and best practices and someday my career sort of emulate what I saw. I think if you can get yourself in that room as often as possible, you, you almost through osmosis, you start to find yourself performing at a higher level. Absolutely. I think that's a fabulous, fabulous tip. You know, Wade, time flies when you have a great guest. And I, I truly appreciate, A, your time, uh, because you're a busy, busy man uh, running all over the place doing things. Any final thoughts of anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I think, you know, the only only piece that, that's worth touching on, we talked a lot about grassroots advocacy on the policy piece. It's also, you know, GOTV. It's getting people engaged in the electoral process. That was, you know, a final element we sort of released in 2020 was our Equip to Vote program, which is a sister to I Make America. In fact, they are essentially the same program. But now let's give people just sort of unbiased, not politically based information on how, you know, where to go vote, how to get registered, what are pro-manufacturing policies you might want to keep in mind and take the best of sort of the gamification and, and just get people engaged in, in the electoral process. 
has been a really fun thing to be a part of new to our program over the last 10 years, because in my mind, you know, elections, of course they matter, but they matter because it's an expression of this great and awe-inspiring freedom and right and ability that we all have. And if we aren't there participating in it, you know, then shame on us when things go awry. So uh, that's been a really great thing too, to introduce to AEM and to introduce the I Make America program and uh, hopefully be a simple resource for other folks to use, uh, you know, within our own industry. Well, I'm really glad that you added that. That's a great, great point. Uh, we all need to participate in, in that electoral process. Uh, it, it matters. Uh, Wade, how can people reach AEM and maybe even the, I think you brought it up earlier, the I Make America uh, yeah. for more information? Absolutely. So the best two places to go are AEM.org to learn more about our association. Uh, there you also find resources. For example, we're tracking the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, seeing where that money's going. On the grassroots side, either imakeamerica.org or hub, H-U-B, imakeamerica.org. Uh, we'll take you either to our general website or to our actual action center where you can start to engage in that gamification, take actions on policies that are important. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, in addition, uh, we can always include my email in any kind of description and, and folks are welcome to reach out to me. Perfect. Well, that's a wrap of today's wonderful conversation with Wade Balconis, the Director of Grassroots Advocacy at the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Wade, thank you for being on the show today and all the best. Thank you. Let's face it, today's advocacy arena is just plain noisy. Organizations are stretched. You need every advantage to make sure your issue gets the attention it deserves and your voice heard. The RAP Index is the best way to do just that by finding your stakeholders' relationships and engagement power. Get past the noise. Know who your people know. Go to rapindex.com. That's R-A-P-Index.com and tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. If you like today's podcast, head over to where you find your podcast and subscribe to the Voices in Advocacy podcast. A big thank you to today's guest. I appreciate your time and the unwavering passion for advocacy you have. Well, that's it for this episode of Voices in Advocacy. Remember, you have the power to be an effective, influential advocate. Now go out and make it a better world. We hope you enjoyed today's Voices in Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices in Advocacy, go to our website, voicesinadvocacy.com.